Welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is February 6, 2022, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's a pleasure to be joined in dialogue by participants from the Toronto Philosophy and Calgary Philosophy Meetup groups. Whether you've been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. Today we will resume our discussion of the Phaedo, covering from 77c to 98b, in which Socrates, Simeus, and Cebes continue to explore the nature of the soul. Socrates begins with the distinction between the visible composites of physical objects and the invisible non-composite of the soul. Then he counters the arguments of Simeus and Cebes, who say that the soul exists for a limited time only. Simeus says for only one life, while Cebes argues the soul, wear, the soul wears out after a number of lives. Their debate takes place, of course, in the hours before Socrates' own soul will be separated from his body, its execution having been prescribed by the Athenian tyranny in their war against wisdom. Death, as Socrates is about to experience, is the separation of soul and body, but his soul, he insists, will continue to exist because it is not composed of parts that can be broken up and scattered to the winds. As always, to focus our discussion, I have suggested three themes, which are posted on the shared drive linked to the event notice on meetup.com. I'll invite participants to exchange their thoughts on today's reading, and as they do so, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread of ideas. We can go in any direction the group chooses, but for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. To share your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom. Using the first name from your screen profile, I'll call on you to speak in the order that hands are raised, giving precedence to those who haven't sp spoken before. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome any participants who wish to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. So with Fido today, we can pick up where we left off two weeks ago with some new ideas and some questions left hanging. If the soul is information, as one participant suggested, how is that data stored and how do future souls recall the information of past souls? Is there a finite number of souls? In the present, does everything come to be in opposites, as Socrates said? And what do opposites mean with respect to one thing? Does it mean one part negates the other? Or does it mean the two limits of a thing's being and non-being? There are some important points that Socrates raises in today's reading that could help in our approach. Each of us is part visible and part invisible, he states, the visible part being the physical body that exists in a state of uncertain knowledge. We reviewed two weeks ago the uncertainty principle that governs physics, that the more we know of an object's position, the less we know of its momentum and vice versa. Today, we'll read Socrates' assertions that the ever-changing physical body in its senses confuse the invisible part of us, the soul, which has to make sense of the physical data that it receives from the bodily senses. The soul's task is to determine the causes of physical actions and reactions, and for that it needs to establish the point of equivalence, or the equal, between the opposites of each thing. The soul, Socrates says, is invisible. And there is no changing, increasing, or decreasing of things that are invisible, because they are everywhere equal. Here we will find references to Plato's theory of forms in the context of the unchanging form or nature of each thing. We can ask two questions in determining the nature or form of each thing. First, what is it? And second, what is it not? As Socrates stated at 73c, recollection is triggered by similar and dissimilar which the soul distinguishes by the point of the equal that divides them. 
We'll end today's session with a powerful observation by Socrates from 96b to 97e on uncertainty and his search for the mind as the cause. His point may be especially relevant to quantum physics, and I'll propose a practical application of philosophy with respect to the quantum computer bit, an image of which I have in my screen background. We'll resume at 98C in two weeks' time in our final of three sessions on the Fido. So since it leads to a number of themes in today's reading, let's start by considering the definition of wisdom that Socrates offers at 79D and 90C. And as we do this, let's ask ourselves, is this definition complete? Is anything missing? How do you define wisdom? Or to put the question more precisely, how does your soul define wisdom? So I'll put on the screen here uh, the excerpts from 90C to and 79D. And just to bring it back to the previous episode, uh, there was a reference at uh, 69B uh, in which uh, they were talking about uh, this idea of finding virtue and uh, exchanging pleasures for pleasures and pains for pains, fears for fears. And Socrates made the statement at 69b uh, that, uh, my dear, my good Simeus, he said, I fear this is not the right exchange to attain virtue, to exchange pleasures, pleasures for pleasures, pains for pains, and fears for fears, the greater for the less like coins, but that the only valid currency for which all these things could be exchanged is wisdom. So that was in the previous episode, but here he says a couple of things about wisdom. At 79D, he says, but when the soul investigates by itself, it passes into the realm of what is pure, ever existing, immortal, and unchanging. And being akin to this, it always stays with it whenever it is by itself and can do so. It ceases to stray and remains in the same state as it is in touch with things of the same kind. And its experience then is what is called wisdom. And then at 90C, he says, you know how those in particular who spend their time studying contradiction in the end believe themselves to have become very wise and that they alone have understood that there is no soundness or reliability in any object or in any argument, but that all exists simply fluctuates up and down as if it were in the Euripus and does not remain in the same place for any time at all. And so it struck me that, you know, these particular sections, um, you know, they're, they're giving a definition of wisdom, or at least the Socrates thinks wisdom is, uh, but they do touch on a number of things that we talked about in the last episode, including this idea of uh, things coming to be in opposites and uh, the question of whether opposites negate each other or is opposites just two limits of a thing? So, so does everything have two limits or does everything negate itself? Um, so that's kind of the, I think, the point that he's making at 90C. Uh, and then at 79D, he's talking about wisdom as something that's, you know, uh, kind of more eternal. Um, and so I just wonder, you know, what people think about this, this definition of wisdom. You know, is, is there anything that he has not dealt with here? Is there any other points that you think are relevant to wisdom? I'll just kind of raise a um, quote that I read from Will Durant, thanks to Jose G, who sent this to me after the, the last session. Will Durant was a philosopher who wrote, I think, in around the 1930s, and Bill said, uh, science gives us knowledge, but only philosophy can give us wisdom. 
Uh, and that made me kind of think of that passage that we uh, looked at towards the end of the last session in which uh, Socrates says that, you know, as we think, one thought is triggered by the previous thought, and each thought can be either the same or the different from the previous thought. So is, is knowledge kind of this process of acquiring information, but is wisdom kind of the process of organizing the information into something more permanent? Uh, and I guess that's maybe what Socrates might be trying to say at 79D, you know, that, um, you know, something that always stays with it wherever it is by itself and, and can do so, it ceases to stray and remains in the same state as is in touch with things of the same kind. Um, so what, what do we think of that definition of wisdom? Is, is, is that all there is? Is there something missing? Um, is your own experience of wisdom different from that? Anybody's thoughts? I guess it's kind of, you know, it's, it's this idea of, of the eternal kind of nature of a thing. And, and I think this may be, you know, getting towards what, uh, what Socrates talks about in, in terms of the forms. Um, JK, your thoughts? Yeah, I was just thinking that um, you look at the, looking at history and science and so forth, and there's always a, um, a sense that we've arrived at the uh, absolute truth and uh, we have uh, achieved wisdom of some sort. But then we realize that, uh, you know, time passes and then, and then we have to admit that uh, we were wrong. Okay. okay. Um, so so the, I think the idea of, uh, of this, uh, that we understand what the immortal and the, uh, the realm of the unchanging eternal is, is, uh, is a very, uh, what, uh, uh, you know, risky um, uh, wager that uh, we, you know, to make that, that, uh, that we can conceptualize it. And maybe maybe that kind of requires also a kind of a negative uh, um, a negative kind of um, assertion assertion that maybe the highest truth is that we really can't assert what it is. Perhaps in, in some in some religious traditions, that's that's the approach that they've taken. And I think in Plato uh, also the there is a kind of a, a, a admission that. Um, that the ultimate truth of the is uh, is not grasped by the rational understanding, but by the uh, by resorting to um, to a mythic uh, kind of um, you know um, a kind of uh, you know apprehension. Or is it or is it that the ultimate truth can be approached through reason, but not necessarily through the senses? Is, is that more what he's saying? Or, or did I misunderstand what you were saying? Or, it's, or, or is, it even, is it even grasped by, be understood by reason? Right. That, that's the, that's the uh, conundrum, isn't it? The, that we, we, we depend on our reason, but then uh, can the ultimate uh, you know, truth be uh, understood and, and, and apprehended by reason? And I think somewhere in parts of Plato, there is a kind of that, that the ultimate truth is, has to be resorted to by the, uh, by, by myth, mythology. 
Mm. Interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, it makes me think, actually, I was looking back yesterday at Phaedrus and this idea of um, our communicating with each other. Um, and, you know, the, the truth arrives, arising in some sort of back and forth uh, dialectical process uh, where we kind of move towards the first principles of a thing. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that that idea of communication that you talked about is is uh, interesting, and and certainly, you know, this idea that uh, what we take in with the senses is subject to some distortion and confusion. And I think we talked about that last time in terms of the uncertainty principle. That the the more you know of a thing's position, the less you know about its momentum, and vice versa. So we can never have absolute knowledge of physical objects. And certainly Socrates goes to great lengths in this section that we're reading today and in the section before, uh, two weeks ago, um, to present this confusion that the, the senses provide us. So, um, you know, interesting, that idea of the negative assertion that you talked about, JK, the, you know, that the absolute uh, truth can't be asserted. Um, so that's an interesting idea. And, and you know, let's, let's explore that in terms of... Uh, of people's conception of wisdom. Um, so we'll go to Steve and then Joel. Steve? So um, and when I read these <clears throat> two sections, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, it made me think quite a bit and uh, uh, along the lines of what's uh, what's been said, when I look at 90C and it's uh, studying kind can contradictions in the end, those who study contradictions and believe themselves to have become wise, that they alone have understood there is no soundness or reliability in any object. And then the 79D says the soul investigates by itself. So it, it itself passes into the realm of what is pure, everlasting, immortal. So I'm looking at the soul investigates. So how, you know, if the soul doesn't investigate by studying contradictions or by studying, diff how does the soul investigate by itself to pass into this realm? And uh, what you were just saying, Jason, maybe it's a question, if I understood what you were saying is, uh, um, it is a using the feedback loop to get closer and closer to some, you know, maybe you can't obtain the ultimate truth, but maybe you can get yourself a little bit closer. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's uh, that's the thoughts that came up for me. And appreciate that idea that, you know, you use the word feedback loop. And um, I, I guess feedback loop is something to me where you put in, you, you put an input and you get the same output all the time. So the input becomes the output becomes the input becomes the output. And I think that's maybe a little bit different from what Socrates is trying to say in terms of finding the equal in things. Can and, I explain, expand on what I said? Yeah, by all means. Yeah. So I'm thinking more in, you know, I'm not a mathematician, but I'm thinking in in way of the the idea of the free uh, free energy principle that 
when you when you do something, even if you're wrong, you get feedback and then you're able to correct. So <clears throat> now you're working, you know, instead of, you know, 55th, you know, if you're picking between six, uh, looking for a, a black spot out of six spots and you choose one and you're wrong, now you're, you're, you're getting closer and closer. So it's not feedback as it's, it's, it's always the same. Ultimate reality is always the same. The physical universe is always the same, but this, you know, this free energy, as I understand it, is you're getting yourself, you're improving your ability to function in the world by getting that feedback. I don't know if that uh, ex- explains what I'm, uh, does that mm-hmm. resonate in, in what I'm saying a little better? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think I understand. And, and it's, I think what you're saying, as I understand it, is this kind of idea of, um, testing probabilities and then eliminating the things that are improbable to get closer to the things that are probable. I think if, if I understand what you're saying correctly. Right. As a way of yeah. gaining wisdom. So right. it's, it is studying right. contradictions in order to, right. to, to become wiser. Mm-hmm. And, and I, that's a, that's a good way of putting it. I think I, the one thing about contradictions um you know, just to talk about what Socrates is addressing here at 90C is uh, it's one thing to know what something is not, but another thing to know what it is. And that's what I'm thinking when when th- there was that discussion in the last episode about the equal, finding the equal and everything coming to be in opposites. And and, and I think it was Jose G last time who corrected the, the, the or, or suggested that when a thing comes to be in opposites, it's not negating itself. It's just that it's establishing two limits. So everything comes to be with two limits. And as I was rereading this, it, it, it made me think that the two limits are the being of a thing and the non-being of a thing. So that everything has a limit of its being, of its existence, and a limit of its non-being. And so the equal is that point that's right in the middle of the things being and the things non-being. And at that point in the middle, I think, as you said, Steve, that's the point where you, you're kind of, uh, you've tested all the probabilities and you've arrived at that point that says, okay, I know exactly where the thing begins and where it ends. I don't know if that makes sense, you know, but that, that's to me what the equal means, finding the equal. And that's where the soul's job uh, comes into play, uh, where, the, where the physical sense is that that equivalence of things things is not accessible to the physical senses because of the uncertainty principle. Um, and so I don't know what, what you think about that or what others think about that. Um, we can go to Joel. Hey, so my question is more or less just uh, to ask for some clarification. It's related to both what Steve said earlier, as well as what's stated in 79D. Mm-hmm. Um, my question specifically is just uh, uh, just a few sentences back around 79A. And if uh, you'll just give me 10 seconds, I'll read it out. Um, do you then want us to assume two kinds of existence, the visible and the invisible? Let us assume this. And the invisible always remains the same, whereas the visible uh, never does. Let us assume that too. Now, one part of ourselves is the body and another part is the soul. So 
my question specifically is like the uh we're, we're talking about uh, characteristics of what the soul is more or less capable of doing and verifying so uh what what exactly uh, this part here is um and the invisible always remains the same whereas the visible never does how, like how how is that established how, how can you tell the difference between something that is invisible and never changes versus say just nothing exactly does that make sense i think it's a good question um and and you know i'd ask everybody else to weigh in on this you know when i think of the when I think of the visible, I think of the physical objects and every physical object I think we now know is made up of atoms and atoms are made up of quarks. And, you know, so every physical object is composed of parts uh, and each part is different. And, and every, every part in a physical object is always in motion, is always in change. Uh, so no physical object remains the same. Uh, because of this constant motion of the physical objects. And the invisible, though, when I think about it, um, the only thing I can equate it to is the vacuum of outer space. You know, th this idea of this vacuum with absolutely nothing in it. Um, and if you were in that vacuum in outer space, you couldn't pick out one point from another point. I mean, it would just be, it would be completely just equal. It's as if it's just this sea of nothingness. Um, and there is no changing in that sea of nothingness. It, it's just, there is no difference between any of the points in it. Uh, that's kind of the way I think about the invisible in my mind. Um, and then certainly, you know, I guess what you, what you've pointed to here is, you know, kind of the end of the first reading that, you know, it's kind of where um, I think, you know, we can go maybe in terms of thinking about the, the idea of the forms, you know, this, this kind of unchanging existence uh, of something, uh, of a thing. Um, and the only place you can get no change is in the invisible, certainly not in the visible where, where everything is always changing. Uh, but I think it's a it's a very good point. And I just I use that kind of analogy of the vacuum of outer space to deal with you know kind of conceptualizing the invisible. And you know certainly the invisible, you know certainly whatever motivating force is inside us, the soul, call it you know that is not visible. Like nobody's ever seen a soul. Um, so you know I I would ask you know does everybody accept that idea that there are things that are invisible? Um, or, or, you know, do we think that there is some way of eventually seeing the soul, that everything is eventually visible? You know, maybe this gets to the nature of knowledge, too, and this question of whether knowledge is derived uh, empirically um, through the physical senses, or is some knowledge derived by means other than looking at what is visible? So you, you raised a whole host of questions, Joel, so thank you for that. And and I don't know if I've answered any of them, but but I think we can look to to others to uh, to help with that. So we'll go to J.K. and then to Steve. Yeah. So can you think of um, the visible and the invisible as like being and non-being, and so that um, you know being is everything that you can you know see and perceive and maybe even conceptualize as 
as uh, things that exist, that are being in the world. And even uh, energy could be conceptualized as that too, as, as being. But non-being would be, you know, um, that which you cannot even conceptualize and uh, see and conceptualize. But that there is a, you know, there is, there is something there, you know, um, you, you know, um, which, uh, you know, which uh, could be the source of what being is, you know, but it's, uh, it's not able to be conceptualized or understood. And so that's why uh, in some religious uh, traditions, um, philosoph philosophical traditions, they've made the, uh, they've used the negative assertion that once you, uh, you know, uh, are able to assert or conceptualize and posit that God is this, that's not what God is. Or, you know, uh, in a Taoist tradition, you know, the Tao can be, um, the Tao can, is that which cannot be, be said or conceived, uh, right? So you can try to say, you know, if you think that Tao, that the Tao is th that, that's not what it is. Mm. Um, so I, I don't know if you can think about that. Also, uh, you know, is the um, is the equilibrium between being and not being becoming? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think you you raise some good thoughts there. The and and that's the way I see that equilibrium. You know, that that equal point between being and non being. Uh, that's the point that occupies the present, uh, and that's the state of becoming. Um, so it's neither being nor non-being. The, the present is that point of potential where either could exist, uh, and that's the point in our minds that we have to decide, you know, whether we want to, you know, go towards the existence of something or the non-existence of something. Um, but I, I like the way that you you equated visible with being and non and invisible with non-being. I think that uh, I think that could be helpful. Um, and you know we can see what others think about that. And certainly your idea of you know the equal being that state of becoming, you know that that point of non neither existence nor non-existence of something. Um, so thank you for that. And, and Steve, your thoughts. Speaking in of religious traditions, what you just said made me think of Nargajuna's Tetralimma, where there's four four posits: uh, being, non-being, and then you're both both being and not being, and you're neither being nor non-being. Yeah. So, um, you know, my earlier thought was about the. Uh, the example of space the being uh, an example of the invisible. And uh, you think about, uh, well, energy or electricity is invisible, but it still is a thing. And, but that seems to, uh, you know, maybe on a gross level, but if you think even of just information, you know, information, you know, it would seem to be physical even though it is uh, invisible, like, um, well, I'll stop there. That was my thought. I think that was very helpful, you know, the, those four states of, of things, you know, being, non-being, 
both or neither. And I think that I, I don't know a lot about information science, um, but I think that those four possible states could relate a lot to the way we process information uh, in, in computers. And so this may actually have a, quite a good relevance actually to the end of today's session where we look at 97 or uh, 96 and 97 uh, in particular in this, uh, in terms of understanding the potential states of something. Uh, so I think that's, that's really helpful. Um, and certainly it really helps us to get to this idea of the equal, you know, and, and what's being talked about. And it, it makes me recall that uh, when we talked about the philibus, I think it was four weeks ago, um, we, we started by talking about uh, that example of uh, what they're trying to do now with information science and, and feeding data into machines and trying to train the machines on what a thing is. And we saw that terrible example that occurred, I think it was in 2015, uh, where an image of two black people was presented and Google's computer called them, labeled them as gorillas because the computer had only been told what gorillas are, but the computer does not know what gorillas are not. And it makes me think that maybe it's easier or it's it's more available to us to program into the machines what something is, but what a thing is not is far greater in potential than what a thing is. And so really, if you're going to do a complete training of the machines, you can't just say what a gorilla is, for example. You have to say all of the things that a gorilla is not. And clearly, a gorilla was not what was in that picture. And, you know, this could really call into question, I think, the approach that we're uh, applying to um, to you know identifying using using machines to identify things, um, and it's something that you know I, I, I'm considering in the idea of set theory. You know, uh, Bertrand Russell was, uh, I think, very you know very well known philosopher, of course, and uh, about a hundred years ago, and and he was really talking about set theory. And the question is, what is the set of a thing? Is a set of a thing both what it is and what it is not? Or is something just what it is? You know, I think that's the, maybe that's the point that we, you know, need to address. Uh, and maybe that's what Socrates is talking about in terms of wisdom. Uh, so it's, it's a very helpful point. Are there any other thoughts about wisdom? I, I mean, I, as I said, I, I wanted to start with this idea of wisdom because I think it really does touch on a lot of things um, in Fido and in particular in today's reading. You know, the, well, maybe, you know, we can look at this one, this one reading here, uh, it's, it's Joel actually brought up uh, the end of this reading. So maybe we can just take a look um at this uh section here from 78b to 79a and this this talks about the visible and the invisible which we've already started talking about it also raises the terms composite and non-composite um and as socrates describes it the composite are things that are composed of parts they're made up of parts so they're called composites composed of parts or compounds is the other word that he uses and then he contrasts that to the non-composite, something that has no parts. And the invisible has no parts. 
you know, that this kind of that analogy that I use in my mind of the vacuum of outer space, there are no parts, everywhere is the same. And he winds up by concluding that the everything physical is a composite, it's made up of parts, but the soul is a non-composite, there are no parts to the soul, the soul is everywhere equal. And, and so this, the, the dialogue goes on to say that the soul is always looking for its, you know, its equal, which is in this realm of the non-composites, the realm of the invisible, where there is no difference. I think it's actually, a, to me, it seems like a very powerful conception of the soul. Uh, it, you know, the, the non-composite being uh, a lot more powerful in a way than the composites. And in fact, he says that nature is set up so that the non-composite non rules the composite. Uh, and I think that's, to me, it's a very powerful powerful and empowering idea. Um, so maybe we can just read this section. I don't know if uh, if we would have any volunteers for Socrates and Cebes. I, I could do Socrates if if somebody wants to do Cebes. We Cebes. Okay, thank you. All right, I'll just start then. So again, this is 79... Uh, 78b to 79a, Socrates starts off by saying, we must then ask ourselves something like this. What kind of, of, what kind of thing is like, likely to be scattered? On behalf of what kind of thing should one fear this? And for what kind of thing should one not fear it? Should we then examine to which class the soul belongs? And as a result, either fear for the soul or be of good cheer? What you say is true. Is not anything that is composite and a compound by nature liable to be split up into its component parts, and only that which is non-composite, if anything, is not likely to be split up? I think that is the case. Are not the things that, are all, that always remain the same and in the same state most likely not to be composite, whereas those that vary from one time to another and are never the same composite? I think that is so. Let us then return to those things with which we are dealing with which we were dealing earlier, to that reality of whose existence we are giving an account in our questions and answers. Are they ever the same and in the same state, or do they vary from one time to another? Can the equal itself, the beautiful itself, each thing in itself, the real, ever be affected by any change what, whatever? Or does each of them that really is, being uniform by itself, remain the same and never in any way tolerate any change whatever. It must remain the same and in the same state, Socrates. What are the many beautiful particulars, be they men, horses, clothes, or other things, other such things, or the many equal or the many equal particulars, and all those which bear the same name as those others? Do they remain the same or, in total contrast to those other realities, one might say, never in any way remain the same as themselves or in relation to each other? The latter is the case. They are never in the same state. These latter you could touch and see and perceive with the other senses, but those that always remain the same can be grasped only by the reasoning power of the mind. They are not seen but are, but are invisible. Uh, that is altogether true he said. You then want us to assume two kinds of existences, the visible and the invisible? Let us assume this. And the invisible always remains the same, whereas the visible never does? Let us assume that too. Well, thank you. 
Um, so in that section, this is where Socrates was kind of addressing this concern that the soul on death would just scatter to the winds um, and never exist after that point. And so the argument starts off with this idea that uh, something that is non-composite doesn't have parts like the soul can't be scattered. Whereas something is a composite has parts, then you can scatter the parts. But if, if there are no parts, there is no scattering. So this this fear that when, when you die, this, the soul just disappears, scatters to the winds, especially so in a strong wind, I think, as he said in the section that we read two weeks ago, um, he's, Socrates is saying, well, we shouldn't have this fear because there's nothing to be scattered. Um, so that's how this section comes about. Uh, but I think the the one interesting thing that really talks about the forms to me, this theory of the forms, is this, this paragraph when Socrates says, let us then return uh, to those things which we, with which we were dealing earlier, to the reality of whose existence we are giving an account in our questions and answers. Are they ever the same and in the same state, or the, do they vary from one time to another? Can the equal itself, the beautiful itself, each thing in itself, the real, ever be affected by any change whatever, or does each of them that really is being uniform in itself remain the same and never in any way tolerate any change whatever? Uh, the word uniform I particularly struck me there because it, it contains the word form, uh, uniform, one form. Uh, and, you know, it, it really, you know, to me, it's, it's this idea that the, the form is the, the thing from its beginning to its end, from its being to its non-being. Um, and, you know, just uh, I wonder how that kind of ties into this idea of wisdom, you know, is, is, is it the idea of looking for the, the, the essence of something from its beginning to end and finding that essence? Uh, is that what wisdom is? Whereas knowledge is just feeding us details about, you know, the, the, the variances, uh, the, the many particulars that a thing can appear in. Uh, but wisdom is actually taking that knowledge and, and, combining all of that to find really this almost it's almost like a first principle isn't it um of a thing i just wondered if that if that uh struck anybody that that particular part of it jk i just have a question um about this idea of uniform and meaning uh one form <clears throat> but plato uh well and we understand <laughs> Is talking about forms, right? He has a theory of forms. Are they are, so? Are there many forms that, uh, or are they kind of like subforms of the one main form? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a good question, and it makes me think. You know, again, as I was reviewing the Republic yesterday, um, he talked, for example, about the good. The form of the good, um, that what gives truth to the things known and the power to know to the knower, uh, is how he defined the form of the good. But then he talked about the form of the beautiful in the Republic as well. And he said that the beautiful is a form on itself, but it's it's lesser of a, it's it's a lesser type of form than the form of the good. So in a way, it's a, it's a subform. So the good. <clears throat> The good, I think he really placed prime among the forms in the Republic, uh, but the other forms like the beautiful, so the beautiful is 
something into itself. And I think the, the key is this idea of something by itself. So something that doesn't require reference to anything else to exist, um, yeah. that, that makes it a form. I don't, I don't know if yeah. that makes it, uh, yeah. that makes well, sense. What, what, would, uh, what makes it more clarifying for me is, is uh, Spinoza's idea of uh, substance that there is only one substance, one form, <clears throat> but there are attributes of that substance. And then uh, we are, you know, uh, existing modes of those, uh, of the, uh, of those uh, of the original substance. Hmm. Interesting idea. I, I, um, I, I haven't read Spinoza. I don't know if anybody else has, although I think I understand some of the, some of the themes that he addresses. Um, I'm wondering, substance, is that something that's subject to definition? Um, whereas forms in terms of Plato, and especially as I reread Phaedrus, and um, I'm just looking actually for, I've got a, yeah, here I took an excerpt of it here. Um, in Phaedrus, yeah, in Phaedrus at 249c, he said, um, but a soul that never saw the truth cannot take a human shape since a human being must understand speech in terms of general forms, proceeding to bring many perceptions together into a reasoned unity. That's what he said at 249C in Phaedrus. And it made me think that the forms are almost a way of communicating. Um, whereas I don't know what Spinoza says about substances, but is substance something that is already defined and not subject to our definition in dialogue with each other. Um, whereas I think Plato is more talking about the way we define a thing. So I, th I think I used an example in my introduction to the previous episode about a teacup, for example. Um, I might define a teacup one way and you might define it another. Like I might use a coffee mug to drink my tea from and that would still work as a teacup but you might use something different to drink tea from, so, you know, how, how do we define the form of teacup? Uh, you know, it's subject to this kind of variability maybe, um, but somehow, somehow it's in our back and forth, our definition that there are some common properties to the thing. So I, I don't know what, what people think about that idea. Um, it's, it's an interesting, interesting thought, the, the use of Spinoza there. Well, for Spinoza, oh, yeah, you know, sure. the, uh, the substance, you know, is uh, God and nature. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's only, there's only one, you know, just like he's saying here, there's only one, one form, it, one soul. It's a, it's a uniform. And it is, it, uh, everything is uh, instantiated from that uh, one substance, one form. And everything takes on, you know, uh, is, an, is, a, is an attribute or a, a mode of that original form, mm. yeah, substance. Okay. So maybe the soul is more like <clears throat> the substance, and then the things <clears throat> that surround the soul could be forms. <clears throat> yeah. Well, what's supposed to everything underlying everything is well within everything is a, is a, is a soul, I guess. Right. Yeah. Right. Maybe. Yeah. That's yeah. I mean, one of the things here that's um, struck me too is this part where Socrates says they're not the things that are always that always remain the same and in the same state, 
most likely not to be composite, where those that vary from one time to another and are never the same are composites. And so this idea of being in the same state uh, reminded me of Theotetus, where he talked about um, change in state as being a form of motion. So motion is not just a change in spatial, spatial position, but it's also a change in state. And so, you know, we need to understand that a thing can change in state over time, um, but that the form of, of a thing could be the same, even as, even as it's changing. Um, you know, for example, there's, uh, you know, there was the example of a bed, for example. So, you know, there's this form of a bed, you know, a bed is a certain <coughs> thing, but it takes many different shapes and many different uh, modes of existence. Um, it takes many different states. Um, so, you know, it, it's, yeah, I, I don't know what, uh, I, I think it's, it's very helpful to, to raise these questions. Um, yeah. Well, you can also uh, think of, uh, you know, Einstein's, um, you know, um, formula of the E equals M3, M2 square. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, is it E equals M square, right? E equals MC squared. MC squared. Okay. So, yeah. So that would be like uh, you know everything you know every mm -hmm. all matter is is really basically energy. Mm -hmm. Once you know matter breaks down, it becomes pure energy. Mm -hmm. So you know thing like that. So mm -hmm. energy could be something like you know behind energy might be the might be the form, mm -hmm. or you know. Actually, it's it's a an interesting question and certainly that equation uses the equal in it right e equals mc right, right. squared so this idea of equal so energy could be either in its pure form or it could be in the form of a physical a physical mass right mass having resistance uh, at the speed of light which is the speed limit in the fabric of space time so energy could take e either form either either form either either physical form or non-physical form with mm -hmm. the equal between it. And that's maybe a, an interesting way of thinking about the equal and, and finding that distinction between energy and its equivalent mass at the speed of light squared. Right. So you can think of energy as just pervasive in the mm -hmm. universe. Mm -hmm. And it is, it is invisible, right? In a mm -hmm. sense. And you could, yeah. you could uh, yeah, but it, mm -hmm. it can be measurable in terms of matter. Right, right. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, we'll go to Jose. Your thoughts, Jose? Yes, I, <clears throat> I, I was looking at some uh, definitions of wisdom and uh, like a, the way that they can see is that uh, knowledge, you have knowledge, uh, when you have knowledge, you have information or, mm -hmm. and uh, you can explain the why and the how, etc. So this is when you know things. So now the difference with wisdom is that uh, wisdom is how to apply uh, knowledge to take good decisions in your life. So and from the I think from the ancient Greeks point of view, Plato or Aristotle is uh, like apply how to apply wisdom is how to apply the knowledge to get to happiness or to get to virtue. Mm -hmm. So this is why I think he gives so. Wisdom is a way to, when you see the forms, when you see the forms, you know the truth of the forms, like the beauty, the good, etc. you get the wisdom. Because then 
you can apply that to live a good life, a life of virtue, a life of truth. Yeah, certainly. I think that's the, you know, the way something can be used to a desired end. Yes. Um, yeah, and and you know the, the, you know in the Republic we saw this whole being divided into three parts, uh, the spirit and the appetites or desires being you know kind of governed or mediated by reason, and maybe it's understanding the the form or the truth of something, and being able to apply that reason to achieve an end that appeals equally to reason to spirit and to the appetite and maybe that leads to happiness and and actually you raised the word happy and that actually appears in uh, 81a today's reading um, talking about the this is again going back to socrates saying that the job of a philosopher is to practice for dying uh, which we saw last time as well so um you know, at, at 81a he says um that it's uh, practicing philosophy in the in the right way, in fact, is training to die easily. Or is this not training for death, he asks. Uh, and the answer is, it certainly is. It surely is. And then, it, and then he says, a soul in this state makes its way to the invisible, which is like itself, the divine and immortal and wise. And arriving there, it can be happy, having rid itself of confusion, ignorance, fear, violent desires, and the other human ills. And as is said of the initiates, truly spend the rest of time with the gods. Uh, so there's that idea of happiness um, there as being uh, out of this state of ignorance uh, and, and confusion. And he certainly goes to a great extent to talk about how confused we get uh, when we just rely on the senses. Um, and it maybe goes back to that question I asked near the beginning as to whether knowledge can only be derived from empirical evidence. You know, is, is all knowledge that comes to us uh, purely from the senses or does knowledge come to us from other sources? Uh, and here, I think Socrates is saying that, that you know, knowledge, if we just rely on knowledge that comes from the senses, we are not happy uh, because there is that confusion and we don't understand the, the true purpose or the true potential maybe of something. Well, this is, a <clears throat> yeah, but the point is that knowledge, even for whatever means, is not enough to have knowledge. You have to know, like, a wisdom is how to apply this knowledge in, uh, in reaching, what you say, the goal. And the goal for the Greek is his happiness. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and, and maybe it's also a question of, uh, you know, is, is knowledge, does knowledge answer the question how? How something is is done, but wisdom maybe addresses the question why. No, and I think it, how to apply. Right. Wisdom is how to apply in your in your, your right. decisions. But how to apply? For, but how to apply for what purpose and why why yes. why that goal exists? Right. I guess it's maybe a question of why one would have one goal over over another goal. Would that make sense? Uh, I think knowledge. Knowledge implies the why of things because you have information, it's level one, just mm -hmm. information. So now when you have knowledge, is that you can tie up this information, making uh, know the why and the how of things. But the, the next level is wisdom, mm -hmm. how to apply this knowledge 
Yeah. Really happiness. Or right, right. Mm -hmm. So like uh, knowledge is power, but um, wisdom is is how you uh, how you uh, apply that power in order to live. Yeah. To live, right? Yeah. Wisdom is knowing how to live. How to live, yes. Right. How to yeah, reach. You. Right. So then, but then, uh, in order to know how to apply this uh, this knowledge, this is why this is a one one way is to to go to the to the to the world of the forms and know the forms mm -hmm. because you know what is really really is is the beauty and the justice and and all these things. Yeah, it seems like he's saying that if uh, wisdom is knowing how to die. By understanding what death is, and then then you're able to know how to live, live a meaningful life because you know how to die. You know what die, death means. And, and death here again, you know, uh, Socrates has defined death in the section we read two weeks ago as the separation of soul from the body, um, and. I guess I kind of envision that as the soul kind of reaching its point of equivalence. Uh, and maybe, maybe go to that question that, or speak to that question that was left hanging last time as to whether there is a finite number of souls, uh, or whether, in fact, if, uh, if all souls belong <clears throat> to this realm of the invisible, non-composite, um, is is there any definition is there any concept of of limits in that realm yeah. or is it is it inherently without limit or infinite um would that also mean that there's not is not a personal soul right right so individual souls i guess can have limits right they, they would have to have limits and certainly in time sure um but but, but it looks know, like they recycle the they recycle the souls mm -hmm. according to how you behave. You can go even to an animal. Uh, right. You say that the people that they are unjust, they go to a wolf. Right. And, uh, yeah. and even, even, but the person that uh, they were, well, how do you say? They, they had, no, they didn't have virtue because they didn't know that they, they were, they were okay, but they weren't philosophers. They can reincarnate in other people. Yeah, but if uh, if a soul is non-composite, is uniform, then there's no distinction then, right, among different uh, different souls. Well, the interesting thing, and it's uh, if we go, you know, back at the end of the Republic was that story of Ur, um, and we didn't have a lot of time to spend by the by the point that we got to that. But the story of Ur uh, was this story of Ur who died in battle and was uh, went up to the realm of the souls. Uh, and he was brought back to life. And so he was able to tell his tale. And when he was in the realm of the souls, um, he said that the the souls themselves weren't recycled, but what was done is as the souls came into the this realm of souls, uh, the models of lives were placed on the ground before them. There were far more of them, other in other words, the models of different lives than there were of souls present. So at any point, there's a certain number of souls present, you know, the number of people who have died and are waiting assignment to, to a new life. Uh, and all of these models of lives are placed in front of them and including included in these models were, you know, lives of tyrants. And, and so it was the souls, it was the soul's choice to choose which kind of life it wanted to lead in the next, um, in its next 
in physical incarnation. Uh, and it, it was actually very explicit in that and said that the gods could not choose. The, the soul has to choose which kind of life it wants to lead in the next physical incarnation. And I thought that was actually a pretty powerful idea that, that the soul alone has that choice to make. So individual souls aren't recycled, like they don't disappear and are reformed as a different um, as a different uh, individual entity, the kind of individual soul remains in place. It forgets, but it remains in, intact, uh, and it has to choose what it wants in the next life. And it somehow does this through some process of recollection, which Socrates talks about, uh, certainly in the Phaedo, uh, is this idea of recollection. Um, and, and, you know, one soul kind of remembering what it knew in the past. So you would choose what you're familiar with? So you would choose, yeah, I think in, in the story of Uri saying you would choose, you would choose based on your learning. So in, in a previous life, if you had, well, if you had learned to be a philosopher, for example, you would choose a better life than somebody who had never learned those values. Um, you know, somebody who never learned that might, and he actually gives an example of somebody who mistakenly chooses the life of a tyrant um, because he never learned that uh, he never learned in a past life that these bad things could happen. So he just learned that, you know, pleasure leads to more pleasure. And so why not be a tyrant? And, and in the story of Ur, this, this, the choice was made and it was too late then to change it. Uh, once the choice had been made, uh, the three fates then weave that soul into the into the next uh, physical body, and and he couldn't go back after that point. But so that the soul each time it lives has to learn certain things so that it prepares itself for the next life. Joel, what are your thoughts? Um, so if you're presupposing that the soul carries on after death. Does that also simultaneously saying that, like, say, for example, we'll use me, for example, have like, have I always existed even in the past, essentially? And if, 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 if information or knowledge somehow carries on, then why is it that, I don't know, like what, none of us have any recollection of the past before we even existed? So if, if we if we carry on in the uh, in the next life somehow, and if it's eternal, then why why is the past um, just a black box that doesn't? Does that make sense? It, it does. So you're you're asking why why does the soul forget between its different lives? You say forget. Yeah. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, he addresses that. Very specifically in the myth of Ur, or the story of Ur, I, I don't know if it's a myth. I, I would call it a story because I don't think it's been disproven. Um, and he, yeah, he actually says specifically, I'm just looking for it. The reason, the reason this forgetfulness occurs, and he actually refers to it as drinking from the, uh, well, looking for the words, drinking from the fountain of forgetfulness or something, but the reason that occurs is it, it's what allows um, it's what allows for differences to occur in the next life. So that, for example, if a tyrant were to die, 
and uh, were to choose again to be a tyrant in the next life, then that would get almost into this kind of feedback loop, not in the sense that Steve was talking about earlier, but in the sense that I think of a feedback loop as it's the same input produces the same output all of the time. Um, so this forgetfulness is there so that each time the, the soul comes into a new body, it has a chance to to change and to to improve, you know, hopefully. Sometimes it doesn't, but I, I think that's exactly why he says that there is this forgetfulness. Um, and and so each time a new person comes into being, you know, the Joel that exists now is has a chance to do different things from the Joel that existed previously. It was very much like a Hindu reincarnation thing going mm -hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. cool yeah so I, I find it empowering actually I, I think it's i think it the idea of of coming to life every time and being the same as you were in the previous life uh i don't see what the point of that would be um so and, and you know certainly um there's there was talk i think we saw this in the republic again where um you know if a soul was bad in one life it's going to pay the penalty 10 times over for the badness that it did in its previous life. Uh, it, it has to learn. It has to learn. So there's that penalty. But if it was good in a previous life, then it, it reaps the rewards in the next life. Um, so there's always that, that uh, reward and, and punishment um, element in the reincarnation process. So I wanted to maybe just go to this part, you know, this argument between, well, not an argument, but it was a debate, I guess, between Simeus and Cebes and Socrates. Um, and I'll just highlight uh, from 91b to 96a, there's a rather lengthy passage there, but um, the idea of cause and, you know, what, what causes... Um, this process of generation and regeneration in the souls and um, you know the and, and also in, in the length the soul has to exist and so socrates you know again has said soul goes on forever it, it never stops existing um and uh cb's sorry just looking for the section here yeah so he summarizes here the, the arguments at the beginning. He says, we must proceed and first remind me of what you said, if I do not appear to remember it. So Simeus, as I believe, is in doubt and fear that the soul, though it is more divine and beautiful than the body, yet predeceases it, being a kind of harmony. So Simeus has said that um, the soul is like a harmony. It plays once, and then once the body dies, it's like the orchestra dies. There, there's no more harmony. So the soul has one chance to to do its harmony, and then it disappears. And so Socrates continues on. Cebes, I thought, agrees with me that the soul lasts much longer than the body, that no one knows whether the soul often wears out many bodies, and then, on leaving its last body, is now itself destroyed. This then is death, the destruction of the soul, since the body is always being destroyed. So Cebes has compared the soul to a cloak, um, and the the, it, it, the the soul weaves this cloak. The body wears the cloak, and the soul can continue weaving more and more cloaks every time the body uh, needs a new cloak, and a cloak has worn out. the The soul can continue weaving more cloaks, but 
every time the soul is reborn, it's damaged just a little bit more. And so after this continuous process of rebirth and rebirth, the soul just gets so damaged that it can no longer weave any more cloaks. And so at one point, the body wears its final cloak and the soul is just so damaged it can't build any more cloaks. And, you know, I don't know if this idea of continual damage, uh, you know, we're, I guess maybe it's, is, is it the idea maybe that we're born into sin um, and, and we damage the soul and the soul is this pure thing that's just, you know, born into, born into damage every time. Um, you know, and, and so I think Socrates is trying to say that that's not the case, that the soul is always pure. The soul doesn't have different types of harmonies. It doesn't have a good harmony. It doesn't have a bad harmony. Um, it doesn't wear out. It, it just, again, back, it, it's in this realm of the non-composite, the invisible, something that's just always the same. It never changes. Um, and, you know, he ends this section by saying, you know, we have previously agreed that one soul is not more and not less than a soul than another. In other words, all souls are equal, which again, I, th I think is an empowering idea. Uh, and this means that one harmony is not more and is not more and more fully or less and less fully a harmony uh, than another. Can that which is neither more or less harmonized partake more or less of harmony, or does it do so equally? Um, so he dismisses rather readily, I think, the idea of the soul being this harmony that only plays once. But then he goes on to this question that Seabees raises is, you know, is the soul damaged every time it enters a new body? And he says, you know, this is a more difficult question for him. He says, this is no unimportant problem that you raise, Seabees, for it requires a thorough investigation of the cause of generation and destruction. Uh, and so, you know, do we just assume that that destruction happens naturally as soon as one is born, uh, or is there a continuing cause of regener of generation and destruction? So, is generation and destruction a cycle? And that was that kind of leads to what what he talks about at the end of this section today at ninety. Uh, uh, 96B uh, to 97E, um, you know, what is actually the cause of generation, uh, generation and destruction in the in the physical realm, you know, of, of bodies. And just wondering, you know, what are the thoughts about this? You know, is, is the soul something that is damaged by the body? You know, certainly Socrates has talked a lot about how the body confuses the soul, how the body, uh, how the soul, you know, he, he compares it to the soul looking through a cage, you know, the, the body being this kind of cage and the soul is looking through this cage and the bars of the cage are obscuring its vision, misleading it, uh, confusing it, um, bewildering it. Um, in fact, at one point he says that the the more the soul believes that the body is the cause of anything, that's just like riveting the body to the soul inseparably. There's actually one point where it's actually at uh, 81D where he talks about ghosts. Ghosts come back to life or, or kind of are in this between world of life and death because they are souls that have been so closely riveted to the body, so closely sewn into the body because they can't separate 
the reality of you know the eternal kind of the the realm of the forms versus this ever changing realm of the body, and so these ghosts wander about. Uh, I actually found that a really interesting explanation for ghosts. Um, so, you know, is, is it you know this idea of, of the cloak? Uh, the, the the body wearing this cloak that the soul makes, and and how closely that cloak is worn and woven into the body is is uh, I thought it was an interesting question. The maybe we'll just go and look at that section. Um, this whole idea of uncertainty in the order of in the, uh, uncertainty of order in the cause of things uh, from ninety six B to ninety seven E. And maybe I'll just read this section here. So I find this, I find there's a really appealing piece of logic in here. Uh, and maybe, you know, maybe this wisdom is, or part of wisdom is being able to apply logic um, to one's appetites, to spirit, and to reason. Uh, and, and it just was a really interesting piece of logic in this. So this is, starts at 96B, goes on to 97E. So read this. When I was a young man, I was wonderfully keen on that wisdom which they call natural science, for I thought it splendid to know the causes of everything, why it comes to be, why it perishes, and why it exists. I was often changing my mind in the investigation, in the first instance, of questions such as these. Are living creatures nurtured when heat and cold produce a kind of putrefaction, as some say? Do we think with our blood, or air, or fire, or none of these? And does the brain provide our senses of hearing and sight and smell, from which come memory and opinion, and from memory and opinion which has become stable comes knowledge? Then again, as I investigated how these things perish, and what happens to things in the sky and on the earth, finally I became convinced that I have no natural aptitude uh, at all for that kind of investigation. And of this, I will give you sufficient proof. This investigation made me quite blind, even to the things which I and others thought that I clearly knew before, so that I unlearned what I thought I knew before about many other things, and specifically about how men grew. I thought before that it was obvious to anybody that men grew through eating and drinking, for food adds flesh to flesh and bones to bones, and in the same way appropriate parts uh, were added to all other parts of the body, so that the man grew from an earlier small bulk to a large bulk, and so a small man became big. This is what I thought then. Then further consider this. I thought my opinion was satisfactory, that when a large man stood by a small one, he was taller by head, and so a horse was taller than a horse. Even clearer than this, I thought that 10 was more than 8, because 2 had been added, and that a 2-cubit length is larger than a cubit, because it surpasses it by half its length. So this seems logical so far. Um, but then, you know, this realm of things that are physical is not necessarily logical. And so he goes on with this particular bit of logic. Um, I, am, I am far by Zeus from believing that I know the cause of any of these things. So the question is, what is the cause? I will not even allow myself to say that where one is added to one, either the one to which it is added or the one that is added becomes two or that the one added and the one to which it is added becomes two because of the addition of the one to the other. I wonder that when each of them is separate from each other, 
each of them is one, nor are they then two, but that when they come near to one another, this is the cause of their becoming two, the coming together and being placed closer to one another. Nor can I any longer be persuaded that when one thing is divided, this division is the cause of its becoming two. For just now, the becoming of two was the opposite. At that time, it was their coming close together, and one was added to the other, but now it is because one is taken and separated from the other. So there's some interesting, interesting thoughts here where he's calling into question what is the cause of things. And here he's again, he's trying to answer. CB's idea of, you know, what is the, is there a cause to the souls being um, destroyed each time it enters into, into, into a body? Um, is, is that act of entry into the body a cause of destruction? And so here he's talking about generation and destruction and, and what the cause of that is. I'm just wondering, is there anything in here, you know, the, there is some math here, you know, one plus one equals two. Um, and I've tried to, I've divided the, the flow of the, in the text, it appears as, you know, just regular paragraph flow. But here I've divided the kind of logical clauses here on the screen, um, you know, between, in a way that we can see what he's saying about cause and effect here. Uh, and, you know, this, he's saying here that he thought that he understood the causes of physical things. Uh, at the beginning, he says that, uh, you know, he, he was wonderfully keen on that wisdom, which they call natural science. So he's calling into question this, this idea of wisdom in natural science. In other words, wisdom in physics. Do we know the cause of physical things? And he's giving an example here of, he doesn't even know the cause of how two comes from one. I've got an example. Um, that I just did with these numbers. Uh, let me just put that on the screen. Maybe we can take a look at that. So what I did was I put these questions on the right-hand side uh, here in terms of inputs and outputs in a process. So any process would have to have at least two inputs, right? You, you can't have a process unless there's at least two things to process. Uh, and so here I put on the right-hand side the questions that he's raising at 96B to 97E and I put it next to what is going to be the way signals transmit in the quantum computer. It's, this is a qubit. And so in the logic of a qubit, two possible states can exist simultaneously. The state one, which is down here at the bottom, and the state zero. And so what we have here is a sphere. It's a sphere with a triangle rotating in it. Okay, and there's three axes, uh, the x-axis, the y-axis, and the z-axis. And they are equal, so there is an equal in this diagram here of the qubit, and they're equal at this point in the middle where x equals y equals z. So is that, there's that idea of equal, and there's the idea of opposites. Uh, so it can be in opposite states, one and zero, but these opposite states happen simultaneously. And this is what gives, or what will give the quantum computer such incredible power because things can exist in two states at the same time, both one and zero. Uh, and with this point of equivalence always. And I thought this question, or these questions that he asked from 96B to 97C were particularly resonated 
with me in terms of this architecture of the way signals are going to transmit in the quantum computer because of this simultaneous being in two states. So the questions he asks are, uh, does the output result uh, does the output result, uh, the output of two uh, comes from two inputs, one plus one. So one exists first, and then one is added second and produces an output of two. So three questions, does the output result from the first input or does it result from the second input? In other words, is this first input the driver of the output of two or is the second input the driver of the output of two? Or does the output result from both inputs? So in other words, would you get the output two only if you combined the two things at the same time? So question is, which is first and which is second? Or is it a combination that results in the output of two? And then he goes on to say, does each input in its own represent one without regard to the fact that there are two of them? Uh, so in other words, you've got two inputs, but how can each of them be one if combined they represent two? Um, and then three, does the proximity of the inputs one and one at x, y, and, zero, and uh, z here in the, in the qubit diagram here, the, the proximity here right at the, the point that they join the equal, does that proximity cause them to become two? And then lastly, if the single input is divided into its equal, if the single output is divided into its equal inputs, is that the cause of becoming two, which would then contradict one, two, and three uh, of the questions that were just asked previously. I'm just wondering if that kind of, um, that kind of way of seeing this logic that he's presenting, whether that makes any uh, kind of sense in the way we approach things logically, particularly when there's all of these possibilities and probabilities that we're dealing with. Or does anybody see any other logic in that question? And how would we apply wisdom in the context of um, designing algorithms for for this type of scenario where there are two possible states that exist at the same time. So what kind of, you know, they, there can be knowledge applied. I think as we've, we've talked about knowledge is, you know, information generally, I think we've reached a conclusion maybe on that point. Um, but then how do we take, uh, you know, maybe as Jose was explaining, how do we take that knowledge and apply it to produce some sort of desired output? And how would it be possible if we relied just on what we could see, how would it be possible to understand what's gonna happen at the same time simultaneously when you've got multiple possibilities? Really, I really like this piece of logic here. Uh, and, and it really talks about this idea of of generation and regeneration. So I, I'll just call into uh, to attention these paragraphs from 71A to B, where he says, well, this is from the, from the previous section that we read two weeks ago, 71A to B, 
He says, all things come to be in this way, opposites from opposites. Between each of the, those pairs of opposites, there are two processes, from the one to the other, and then again from the other to the first. Between the larger and the smaller, there is increase and decrease. Uh, so we can see uh, you know, the, the pairs, the zero and the one, the two potential outputs here, the zero and the one. So those are the pairs. Uh, those could be opposites, you know, opposite states. Zero is non-being, one is being. We could think of that it that way, maybe in, in terms of the way computers work. Signal on or signal off, signal exists or signal doesn't exist, being or non-being. And so he says, between each of these pairs of opposites, there are two processes from the one to the other, and then again, from the other to the first, between the larger and the smaller, there's increase and decrease. And then he goes on to say at 71C, therefore, if these are opposites, they come to be from one another, and there are two processes of generation between the two. And because we've got a sphere here, we can see that you know you can you can go around the sphere one way, you can go around it the other way. There's this just constant generation and regeneration, and then you can have destruction and generation. Um, and this is where I think that, you know, because Plato was a geometer, I wonder, you know, how how much of that was behind some of what he said and 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 the priorities that he put on some of the the details in his dialogues. I'm not sure that that people really focus on the geometry part of Plato, but I, I found particularly geometric logic in this in this section of from 96b to 97e. Any thoughts on that, JK? So, are we assuming that um, that this kind of a mathematical uh, logic can be, um, you know, applied to? Um, the um, the deepest levels of philosophical thinking about you know uh, uh, you know arriving it, does does this you know correlate with wisdom? Can mathematics be correlated with wisdom of how to live or how to um, think about you know think about these questions of, of how to live? So um, I'm not sure if they can if they're they can be correlated. I mean, at some level, they of uh, knowledge and understanding they, they do correlate. You know, so we have, we could um, program computers using this kind of logic and mathematics. But um, does that we, are we assuming that that could approximate what it is to be to be human or to achieve a kind of human wisdom? So if that's the case in computers, you could you could uh, program computers to uh, arrive uh, achieve this uh, this kind of uh, human wisdom, right? Well, I think that's that is an excellent question, and maybe it's the question of our time. You know, is a computer capable on its own of wisdom, uh, or is a computer only capable of calculation? Um, and we just you know, recall from the Republic where Socrates said that the first order of knowledge for a philosopher is of calculation. Um, and, you know, here in the Phaedo, he's saying we need to find the equal. Um, 
And so there is some sort of consistency in the themes that Plato was presenting in terms of knowledge. But, you know, as you asked, JK, is it a question of just simply being able to calculate? Or is it then, you know, maybe as Jose was implying earlier, then being able to apply that calculation for some purpose? And the purpose could be determined maybe by our appetites, uh, by our spirit, or by our reason, which are the three parts of the soul that Socrates presented in the Republic. Um, so is calculation in itself something of wisdom, or is calculation the basis of knowledge that could be used in wisdom? And again, it's that idea of you know, finding the beginning and the end of something, the two limits of a thing, and then finding that point of equal in the middle where there is, you know, maybe in this diagram, you know, maybe this is the, the potential is the equal point where the X axis equals the Y axis equals the Z axis. You, you've got this equivalence here. And, you know, as you just think about this sphere with these three points in the middle being equal, you know, maybe that's the real potential in this. And so the, the purpose of knowledge is to find that point of potential and then to apply it to some, to some end purpose. Uh, and that's where the wisdom would come in. I don't know what, what he, is, is that kind of image helpful? You know, again, going back to that question of what is wisdom? Now, maybe the, the, the one thing is that mathematics, um, I see it as producing some sort of certainty of knowledge. We, we know that two plus two equals four, and there's no uncertainty about that. Whereas the physical world, there's lots of uncertainty. And in the reasoning process, there's lots of uncertainty. So, um, you know, as, as you asked, JK, is, is mathematics maybe a way of grounding ourselves, uh, providing ourselves some basis of certainty? and understanding the limits of, of anything. In this case, you know, the limits are denoted by zero at the top of the sphere and one at the bottom of the sphere. Um, and if, if this is the, the equivalence, you know, if we understand where this equivalence is between the, the, the being of something at one and the non-being of something at zero, uh, is this point of equivalence the point of potential that is really the, the point that the soul is looking for in anything. And maybe this, this sphere with the triangle in it is equivalent to a form. Uh, Jose, your thoughts? <clears throat> I got, I, I, when, when, we, when, we, uh, when we study the Republic in the divided line, the, like the, math, the mathematics, the geometry, is, an, is, an, is in a lower level than the dialectic. So my, my feeling is that uh, like wisdom, you cannot reach wisdom by mathematics. You have to reach wisdom by dialectic. So to, to get to the, to, the, to the eternal, like a truth and, you know, the justice, etc. cetera. I, uh, to me, I, see it's, uh, I, don't, I don't think that you can get with mathematics. You have to go with the less level that is dialectic, at least for Plato. Mm -hmm. What I mean by dialectic, I think you know the definition of dialectic is you know finding the first principle of something. Um, 
Well, what, are, what are, this, this goes to the previous, uh, at least my concept, <laughs> for, mm -hmm. for the, the previous question about, uh, about um, I, I think this, uh, this, um, this theory forms, etc. is a whole theory that encompasses several things. So in, a, in a, um, for Plato, there are two worlds. One is the invisible or the eternal or the, the truth, etc. We have the, the other world that is the physical world. And the only thing that is common is the soul. Mm -hmm. So the only thing that travels between the two worlds is the soul. So the soul comes from the from the forms, comes to the to the like the humans. Now, how is this knowledge of the forms? Transmitted from the from the world of the forms to the sensible world is through the through the soul and through the recollection, because th this is the only the only the only way that we have to access. There is no other way to access the the uh, the, the, the world of the forms. Mm -hmm. So the recollections is the, uh, our only tool. So now, the way that uh, at least that Plato says that uh, in, in order to To, to get to recollection, I think this is the dialectic. The dialectic, no, I, I don't think that this uh, getting, well, maybe it's getting to first principle, but this is the reasoning with questions and answers. Remember that in his, in his academia, the, the way that they teach, it wasn't like teaching, it was like questions and answers. So the, the students, they pro, they pro Questions, answers, and you get to this is the process of recollection. Because, assume uh, according to Plato, we all we have the knowledge in our in our souls, but we have to recollect them. And the, the process of recollection, uh, you you do the process of recollection, the optimum process, I guess, via the dialectic. So this is uh, at the end. This is the 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 ultimate method. To get wisdom, so now he teaches a lot of mathematics as well in the, in the academia. But this is a preparation. Remember, in the Republic, they study mathematics. I started from 20 to 30 years old, and after that, they started studying dialectic. So dialectic is the, the latest way to get wisdom. Mathematics is a preparation, gives you our reasoning, but it's not the way to get uh, to. I think it's not the way to get to wisdom. I like the way you put that, that the soul is common to both worlds and accesses use of recollection to maybe combine the the uh, elements of both worlds. Um, and I guess, the, you know, the so the, the, in dialogue, we can find, um, we can we can ensure that we are defining things the same way, I think. Um, and then with that common definition, we can then look for the first principle. Uh, but I think the, the problem comes about as he's pointing out in Fido is all of this confusion that the body causes. And so somehow we need to transcend that confusion and you, you need to look for that kind of pure, point where there is no uncertainty uh, and that doesn't exist in the physical world uh, but when, it, when you die <laughs> yeah well when yeah it, when you find 
what is actually pure, but I guess, you know, how you approach um, that kind of pure knowledge is at least as I understand what he's saying in both Phaedo and the Republic is uh, that it's understanding the um, understanding the equivalence of things. So you've got, you've got dialogue has allowed you to establish a common definition. Uh, dialectic is where you look for the first principle of something and looking for the first principle is looking for the point that uh, is kind of the middle of the form of a thing, which is between its two limits. Uh, and, and the number two, I think, is maybe why he's used this in, in this particular section. So if a thing has two limits of being and non-being, and you find the point that is exactly in the middle, which is neither being nor non-being, and that's when you're in the present, where nothing is, everything is becoming, nothing exists, nothing not, nothing doesn't exist. You're kind of in this middle phase. Um, and you've got this potential of finding something, but but you need to have some degree of certainty about it. And so I think that's why uh, in the Republic, he said the first order of business of a philosopher is to understand number and calculation. Um, and that allows you to know the limits of a thing because in, in the physical realm, you're dealing with limits. Things are things exist in components. Each component has a limit, and so the, these composite things that you're dealing with all have limits. And you need to know where something begins, where something ends, and then exactly what's in the middle, because that's the point that you're going to need to to deal with uh, as you're trying to apply knowledge of the thing to in a, in a fashion that is wise that will get you the, the outcome that is going to be good, not just for the moment, but for all time. Um, that's kind of the way I'm, I'm seeing it, but, you know, I, I don't know if this makes any sense. You know, it, 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 to me, it's, it's the logic that he's followed from the Republic. And then we looked at Philobus where he talked about the unlimited and the limit, um, which, you know, again, to me seems to be, you know, the unlimited is, again, the realm of the invisible, uh, the realm of the non-composite. There are no limits in that. And he talked about the limited, which, you know, again, is in the realm of the physical. Um, and then he says, you combine both the unlimited and the limited. Um, you apply a mixture, you, you apply them in a mixture and you add a cause and then you get your outcomes. I think it's, again, here he's talking about cause. And this was brought out, you know, this was brought up by CB's argument that the, that the, the, the birth of a soul in a body causes the soul to be destroyed. And, and Socrates says, no, this is, this is just a continual process of generation and destruction. It's just continual regeneration going around in that circle. But I, I kind of see this consistency of logic that he's supplied in these three dialogues, um, the Republic, Philobus, and, and Phaedo. And, um, yeah, and I, you know, is it wise? Does this help us? You know, when we've got this particular, this incredible power that the human species is now developing with the quantum computer. Like, you know, I've, I've spoken about this many times, you know, the people who have followed this 
the series know that this is a, uh, a pastime of mine is understanding what's happening in the world of quantum computing. And this is something that is coming up, you know, some say it might be 20 years, others say it might be five years from now where the quantum computer becomes active and, and can actually be applied to practical purposes. But whatever happens, it will be very powerful, like many, many thousands of times faster than our current computers. And the question is, what are we going to do with this? You know, what, how are we going to apply our knowledge um, of computing? Uh, what kind of inputs are we going to apply and what kind of outputs are we going to generate? And do we have the wisdom to do that in a way that does not cause destruction, but in a way that causes some sort of regeneration and will be uh, will produce outcomes that are not good just at the moment, but also good through all time, not just for our generation, but for future generations to come. And it's not just in computing, but it's, it's in anything that we do, in any technology that we develop. Um, you know, what kind of wisdom is applied to ensure that the technology serves us rather than us serving the technology. Um, and again, I just I, I thought these these questions that Socrates asked at 96B to 97E in terms of causes, I just found these questions particularly striking. Uh, I I thought about it, you know, it, it seems natural that one plus one equals two, but there's many ways of looking at it. Uh, you know, and we thought that you know, for example, it was thought for a long time, you know, for thousands of years that the earth was the center of the universe. And then we discovered it wasn't. And so how do we ensure that the knowledge that we think we have is actually true and correct knowledge? And is it through numbering calculation, as Socrates said in the Republic, or is it through some other means? And if it's through some other means, by what other means? Uh, would we use or what other means would we use to ensure that our knowledge is accurate? If it's not numbering calculation, what other means would we use? I don't know if anybody has any thoughts on that question. Well, well some philosophers have posited that, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, nature itself uh, is, you know, um, limitless and infinite in its uh, creative capacities and that um, there is, you know, in the, uh, in nature itself, uh, there is a kind of like, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the ultimate soul or, you know, the uh, originate, uh, original impetus, right? And, uh, you know, and then we, we, uh, we can't divorce ourselves from, from our, from, from, na from nature. And that's uh, if we do that, uh, we we have problems. We begin to think that we uh, we are you know we have conquered nature, and it's a kind of a binary thinking that might be misleading. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I don't know if the computer computer science can incorporate that kind of um, understanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a powerful thought. I mean, nature, we are part of nature. I think there can be no doubt about that. Certainly our bodies are part of nature. And then our minds are part of a universe that includes 
invisible things like the mind. Mm -hmm. uh, so both of those are woven into the universe. Um, the thing about nature, you know, when I think about it, nature continually regenerates itself. You know, nature does not need humanity to exist. Humans need nature to exist, right? But right. without humans, nature would just always exist as it always has and always will, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we're at this point of our existence where we are causing great destruction to nature. But, you know, we have, with tools like the quantum computer, we will will have incredibly powerful tools which can serve to preserve nature. If we if we choose to do that, but if we choose not to do that and use it for destructive purposes, uh, then we will cause nature not to exist anymore, and that will be our fault. Mm -hmm. um, and again, you know, what kind of wisdom are we going to use in this question? You know, who's going to decide to what end the quantum computer is going to be used? Not just the quantum computer, but you know the, all of these other technologies that are being developed. You know, there's some who want us to go into the metaverse. What's going to be in the metaverse? What, what will we confront in the metaverse? Will it be good? Will it be bad? You know, whose ideas are going to shape that? I just find these, you know, this. Conception of the soul that Socrates presents in the Phaedo is so powerful and so important. I think it's, you know, we understand a lot about physics and all of the sciences. We understand a lot about the how of it, I think, but maybe not the why of it. Why do we do these things? And why do we make one choice versus the other? All of that's happening, not the body is not causing that to happen. That's all being caused by what's inside the body, the, the invisible soul. And how does this invisible soul cause these, you know, what, what, what is it basing these decisions on? Joel, but you can call me Joe. What are your thoughts? Well, um, I just kind of am hanging on one of your last phrases. You say the how of it, but not the why of it. Are we convinced there is a why to it? I mean, you're, you're operating. I, I, I'm not suggesting that your, your thoughts are wrong in any way, but I think we have to consider the opposite in order to arrive at a midpoint. If there is a why, maybe there is no why, in which case we're dealing with infinity at both ends. So we'll never come to the decision, but at some point, well, at each point, we will be making decisions collectively and as individuals as to where we're going. And that will determine, we, we think, at least in some measure, the future. And to what end, we have no idea. I mean, we may have an idea in the very short term. Uh, but we have no idea where the ultimate end is. So perhaps we should just revert to traditional forms and instead of studying philosophy on Sunday, we should return to our various religious institutions for, the, for these two hours. I'm speaking somewhat <laughs> just like I realize. 
you you raise you raise the question i think and that's very valid uh, you know it's why is why important if is it important um and you know what to what extent do our souls have some sort of agency in this process to what extent can our souls shape the future you know do our souls have the ability to bend time or are we just travelers on this predestined road of time you know and that's maybe i'd like to think that the soul has the power to shape the future and i think we've seen through the history of humanity that we have shaped the future i mean we've we've completely reformed the surface of an entire planet we've built cities we've diverted rivers we've done you know all of these things and now we're going out into space and about to shape space so but maybe as you say to what extent can we actually do that and are there limits to that so good question jane what are your thoughts I guess I'm going to a little bit backtrack to the very maybe beginning of the discussion. I really like the question of why. So I think that is a key crucial point because asking the question why would uh, would sort of Im would imply in a way that there is a bigger picture of things and a sort of intrinsic general logic in the way the world is set up. So from my understanding of where modern science is the sort of cause uh, and effect of the big picture are taken out of the picture. And we're all about functionality nowadays. So if it works, then that's great. We don't really care about the why, presuming that there is no bigger why. And it is like Joel mentioned, if I understood him correctly, no point in asking that why, because um, it's, it's, uh, that question is redundant in a way. And I think that asking the question why, it, it brings us to the thought of wisdom and what it is. Asking the question why is what wisdom is. So knowledge is a collection of pieces of information that we piece together. Uh, we acquire knowledge a lot of the times empirically. But I think what wisdom is, is the ability to sort of transcend knowledge. So we're able to we're able to discover intricate, sophisticated patterns that are not uh, that are not attainable if we're going empirically. Because empirically, we're just—it's sort of like trying to collect all the berries in a huge forest. It's it's impossible. But when you're going for this intricate, sophisticated ability to understand and view patterns, that is true wisdom because you're able to acquire knowledge that is beyond the empirical if 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 that makes sense and and getting back to what mathematics is the way that i view well i'm i'm very i'm very weak in mathematics unfortunately but the way that i view it it's definitely it's definitely um a, a group of disciplines that i i i'd like to uh conquer at least a little bit in a way because i i find that mathematics is a great way to discipline the mind. It um, it uh, helps the person to develop very sturdy and fundamental logic um, that is crucial for a person when you're going into philosophical dialectics. It's you're you're always um, on the brinks of philosophizing, just talking about things using big words and making it sound nice. But are you really? getting to something crucial and in order, in order to be able to get to something fundamentally important and real in a metaphysical sense you need that 
fundamental hardcore logic. And I think the perfect way to do that is mathematics. So mathematics is this sort of model where you can practice your uh, heavy duty logic, and then you can uh, put it into good practice in more metaphysical fields like philosophy. That's, that's all I wanted to add. Thank you. Was you said so many powerful things there? You know, starting with the point is, you know, is there intrinsic general logic in the way things are? Um, I'd like to think yes, because I think it's it's too disturbing to think otherwise. You know that that we exist in this realm where there is no logic, uh, or where there is no fundamental logic, where everything is shifting, and maybe that's the Maybe that's the point that you know uh, Socrates was talking about at 90C. You know that those who spend all their time studying contradiction in the end believe themselves to have become very wise, and that they alone have understood that there is no soundness or reliability in any object or in any argument, but that all that exists simply fluctuates up and down. Um, and you know, it's that it's maybe I don't know. It's like maybe the the approach of Heraclitus, maybe something like that. You know that that nothing is on on nothing is certain everything we're just continuing on this shifting sand and then you know then you asked are we all about functionality or or is there some is there some way that we can change things and then transcending knowledge i think is was a very interesting way of uh, you know um defining wisdom uh, maybe that uh it, it's that that transcending and then you talked about patterns and it reminds me again of our that discussion we had when we talked about the filibus and the that machine learning that misidentified the two black people as gorillas um, because machines aren't good at seeing patterns and humans are still very good at seeing patterns um, far better than machines still um, and you know that's why there was a number of years ago where they were looking for patterns in galaxies uh, with the, you know, like Hubble telescope images. And instead of trying to put the, these images into computers and having computers identify the patterns, they decided that that wouldn't work. So they actually created this um, experiment. It, it was a public science um, experiment where it, it was called Galaxy Zoo. And they put the images on the internet and people could just go in and hundreds of thousands of people did and they identified some very interesting patterns in galaxies that the machines couldn't otherwise pick out so um and maybe that has a lot to do with understanding the forms of things uh you know i think this uh you know if we understand the beginning and the end of something and what a thing is then we can you know apply those same things using mathematics or some other function to to find those patterns. So really, you know, if 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 knowledge of number and calculation is the first order of business for a philosopher, how do we get philosophers to be comfortable with that? Uh, you know, I think there is this general discomfort with with that, and certainly there was on my part before I took up this uh, some years back. Um, I had a very bad experience in math in high school, very bad experience, and it terrified me of it. Um, but somehow I just started to, I got into it through geometry actually. And I found that when I started to see the patterns in geometry, like the pattern in the qubit image of my screen, um, I started to see the mathematical relationships between things and, and it sort of became second nature. But I think it's, 
something that maybe philosophy now, the way it's approached without mathematics generally, um, may be very different from the way it was approached in Plato's time, where, where a philosopher had to understand mathematics and, and geometry and all sorts of other sciences at the same time. Um, and maybe, I don't know if that's the way we need to take philosophy now, but I, I just, I, I certainly find understanding mathematics and geometry really does help with logic. And, and, you know, it wasn't, you know, certainly Bertrand Russell, I mentioned earlier, you know, he, he did a very extensive, um, you know, was in his Principia where he, he did use mathematics very extensively to, to find a number of very important philosophical principles. Um, so maybe there's more of that needed, but maybe more in a way that is accessible and relatable to people so that people don't think that it's, you know, you need a PhD in understanding all of the formulas uh, before you can really understand what mathematics are saying. You know, maybe it is as simple as Socrates is saying for in the, those, those passages from 96 to 97, does one plus one equal two? Like why did why is why is two is two because of the first one or is it because of the second one or because of the combination or because it's divided? Um, you know, maybe maybe it's just general conceptual questions like that that uh, will lead lead to some sort of understanding. So lots of interesting thoughts and questions um, today, and looking forward to uh, finishing the rest of of Fido. Um, in two weeks. Uh, so I thank everybody for attending today and, and so many good thoughts and ideas and looking forward to seeing what kind of conclusions we reach at the end of the Fido and then how that takes us into Parmenides, uh, which will come after that. And I think there's some very particular lines of logic in there that deal with one value in particular, the value one. And maybe there's some interesting mathematics of the value one that we can find that uh, don't require a PhD in mathematics, but just require the application of some logic. So looking forward to that. Um, so thank you all for attending today. We'll end the recorded session now, but again, as always, I invite anybody who wants to stay for Plato's Cafe, a half an hour casual discussion on what we've just talked about or Plato in general or philosophy in general. So. Uh, thank you all for a fascinating discussion today and looking forward to seeing you in two weeks. Bye.